are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, the very dedicated operations manager of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. On today's episode of Lighthearted, we're focusing our attention on an offshore caisson lighthouse in Rhode Island, near the town of Little Compton. Sakonet Point Lighthouse is one that the public can't tour, and it can be seen only distantly from land. But the nonprofit group that works to preserve it has done a fantastic job, and it's kind of a symbol of the town of Little Compton. Cindy, can you please tell us a little bit about Little Compton? I sure can. The area was originally inhabited by the Sakonet Indians. The name Sakonet has been interpreted in various ways, sometimes as, quote, the place where the water pours forth, unquote. The town was incorporated in 1682 by the Plymouth Colony, and the name Little Compton is thought to be derived from Colompton, Devon, England. Elizabeth Pabody, the daughter of John Alden and Priscilla Mullins, who came to Plymouth on the Mayflower, is buried in the town. She was the first white child born in New England. Little Compton is where the breed of chicken known as the Rhode Island Red was originally bred. Today, the town is about 29 square miles and has about 3,600 people. Thank you, Cindy. Quezon Lighthouses developed in the early 1870s in this country. The first one was Duxbury Pier Lighthouse near Plymouth, Massachusetts. In most cases, the caissons or foundations of these lighthouses, which were large cast iron cylinders, were sunk into the sea or river bottom and filled with rock and concrete. Sakonet Point Lighthouse, the one we're talking about today, is a bit different from most because the caisson is bolted to an exposed rock ledge. Cindy, please help give our listeners some more background. Sure, Jeremy. The Sakonet River, actually an inlet of the Atlantic Ocean, separates the towns of Tiverton and Little Compton from the busier Aquidneck Island to the west. Little Compton developed a substantial fishing fleet, but many rocks and small islands made navigation into the mouth of the Sakonet River difficult. In 1882, Congress appropriated $20,000 for a lighthouse on Little Cormorant Rock at the entrance to the Sakonet River. Sakonet Point Lighthouse is a typical offshore lighthouse of its period, very similar to several spark plug style towers built in southern New England around the same time. The cast iron tower is 66 feet tall and the light shines from 70 feet above mean high water. Construction was difficult and slow at the rugged, exposed location, and the lighthouse went into operation on November 1, 1884. The hurricanes of 1938 and 1954 damaged the lighthouse, and the last Coast Guard keepers were removed. Coast Guard officials decided to discontinue the light, feeling that other nearby aids were sufficient for local navigation. Demolition of the structure was considered, but objections from local citizens and officials delayed the decision. The General Services Administration sold the property at auction in September 1961. The high bidder at $1,111.11 was Carl W. Haffenreffer, the president of Narragansett Brewing. A preservation effort began in earnest when the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse was formed in 1984. 
On May 12, 1985, the lighthouse was formally transferred at no cost from Carl and Carolyn Haffenreffer to the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse. The lighthouse was renovated and relighted as an aid to navigation in March 1997. But there was much more work to be done. In January 2006, the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse received word that the group's application for $844,323 from the Federal Transportation Enhancement Program had been approved. The group has also privately raised close to $200,000 for restoration. Work began in the summer of 2010 and was completed in 2011 and 2012. I lectured this past September in Little Compton, and while I was there, I met Scott Brown, president of the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse. I then had a chance to talk with him on the phone in late October. Let's listen to my conversation with Scott Brown of the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse now. With me today on the phone is Scott Brown, president of the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse. Thanks so much for being with me today, Scott. I really appreciate it. First of all, Scott, I want to congratulate you and everyone with your organization on the amazing restoration work that was completed several years ago at the Sakonet Point Lighthouse. How is it that you came uh, to the Friends, and how did you become its president? Well, Jeremy, first of all, thanks for having me. It's quite an honor. We work very uh, obscurely. We toil in the in the background, and it's uh, nice to get out in the light once in a while. The Friends of the Sakana Lighthouse are, are a very skilled group when it comes to soliciting funds, applying for grants, garnering the kind of resources you need to do a, a massive renovation like this. And we also have some very generous patrons in our little part of the world and, and uh, some connected players who could uh, twist the right arms here and there to get this uh, kind of grant money we needed flowing. But uh, what they enjoyed in the politics of saving a lighthouse, they really lacked in any construction management acumen. So uh, the long and the short of it is I really wasn't a lighthouse guy, but I, I do know something about commercial construction. So I was asked to join our board uh, towards the end of the fundraising portion of our project. And uh, very suddenly, we had to pivot to the construction phase of the uh, DOT funds, which they allocate years ago. Uh, they never really got them in hand until around 2010. So uh, we were sort of in a holding pattern up until that point. So pretty much within hours, once that money was actually uh, delivered, I was kicked into the president's seat and we were off to the races. I've followed uh, the progress uh, with uh, the Sakonet uh, Point Lighthouse for a long time. In fact, back in 97, uh, after some, I guess, not not a major restoration, but some work had been done on the lighthouse back then, and there was a relighting ceremony uh, that took place back then, and I actually went down and attended that that ceremony. So I've, I've you know been following it for a while. Maybe you could tell our listeners, what were some of the biggest hurdles uh, you faced when you put a, a scope of work together for the restoration that took place around uh, 2011-2012? Right. Well, I, I think uh, you got to get a little background. I wish I'd known you were there, because I was <laughs> Uh, I was there as well, but uh, that's interesting. Well, the lighthouse had been cosmetically maintained uh, since Carl Haffenreffer bought the uh, property for a thousand bucks or so. But from its uh, decommissioning in 1954 until that point, she'd basically been completely abandoned, so ex completely exposed to the elements. 
And I remember as a teenager in the 1970s, we would shinny up a, a, a tiny threadbare rope we found, uh, you know, on a lobster pot to get up the essentially three-story case on to the lighthouse, huh. which had no front door on it. There was a foot of guano on every single level. The view, of course, was well worth the eye-watering stench and the... Uh, <laughs> Obviously, the tetanus shot, which necessarily followed. But I think it's important to point out to your listeners that this lighthouse sits on a rock, you know, only slightly larger than the space in the open ocean. Yeah. So so these types of lighthouses are more commonly found, I, I believe, in bays and in inlets. But this is really a, a quarter mile south of Sakana Point in Rhode Island. And there's nothing south of the lighthouse but Bermuda. So uh, with that backdrop, you got to picture this doorless, windowless structure absorbing hundreds of winter storms over decades. And the level of the metal degradation uh, uh, that this cylinder had suffered. And again, so you have to imagine the exterior looked okay, but the interior was in, in a really degraded condition. Uh, the, the extent of which was not yet even apparent to us. From the water, you would uh, it would seem that you're looking at a, a self-supporting metal structure, but that's really uh, far from the actual engineering. The major load-bearing component of this type of lighthouse is the spectacular brickwork, which, again, masons laid up in the interior shortly after the Civil War. And this brickwork was literally in perfect condition in 2011, and, and there was never really any cause to tamper with it in any way, save for the need to visit the steel behind it and assess that condition and then generate a work order to repair it. So could you tell us a bit more about what it was like to, to stage a, a project of that scale uh, on an offshore rock with absolutely no protection from the open ocean and no dock and no electricity uh, on that rock out there? Right. Great question. Well, I think that dovetails nicely into why a project like this can run quickly into the millions. It really is a staging that, that pushes the financial needle. Never mind the, all the safety factors involved, you know, it's, it's quite a project. And our contractor, who is absolutely the finest group I've ever worked with, uh, was Nazo Corporation. And I should uh, tip my hard hat to Gary Nazo <laughs> and his project manager, Russ Klein, because before the, you got to remember, before the first hour of work had commenced, this firm had to address multiple layers of state-mandated functions. You have, you know, hazmat remediation plans, OSHA safety plans. You've got to put prevailing wage contracts together for every sub, because remember, this is a DOT partially funded job. They also had to design and fabricate deliver and install a, a three-story steel platform onto this island to support all their equipment above the waves. And they had, and equipment it was, they had uh, a, a massive electrical generator. They had to store fuel to run it. They had a 3,000 pound per square inch high pressure pump. They had a hazmat materials processing plant. They had drums to store the hazmat in. Portageon, safety equipment, tool storage, welding equipment, high-pressure hoses, guns. It was, it was all stacked onto this platform, you know, the size of a small house. 
Scott, I've been around Sakonet Light uh, in boats, and I've actually flown over it in a helicopter one time, but I've never been inside it. I, I know it can be a, a very tough place to land in a boat, and uh, during the uh, restoration process, it must have been very tough for them to land supplies and everything. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that was like? Sure. Uh, this was clearly the question that called our herd of initial bidders for this project. We really don't have any information on how the original laborers addressed this sort of conundrum in the 1880s. Uh, the bidders who started with this hurdle and how they were going to get there generally opted out pretty quickly. Nazo Corporation uh, initially came in with a plan to fabricate a landing track to run their supply boats into where they would have to almost instantly attach the bow of the workboat to a winch that would pull it up a, uh, a marine railway, if you will, onto the island uh, where they would unload uh, crew and supplies. <clears throat> but as I said earlier, this is an open ocean lighthouse, and even on the calmest of days, there is almost always some degree of uh, swell running. So on the first day this expensive system went into operation, the workboat floated up, they made their approach, they connected with the winch, and it then it slowly labors up the rails, and a small swell, as it does every 20 seconds, wrapped around the island and then reconnected with itself exactly where the rails were laid. Uh, the result was the anticipated disaster. The boat was popped up and knocked off the rails, spilled all its crew, all the supplies into the ocean, Oof. and that was the first and last day that system was ever used unfortunately, resulting in the project manager's firing. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, a crane was uh, eventually they fixed a crane to the island uh, to uh, their great expense, uh, which allowed for transferring of supplies to the island, which was still a dangerous proposition, but uh, far more effective. Wow. That's a, it's amazing they were able to, to oh, fuck, it was a scene. make that happen. Yeah. Wow. Luckily, <laughs> the no... embarrassment was palpable. Well, was a little, a little flotilla out there watching, and media and yeah, uh, yeah. locals, everyone getting that first day of work going. Well, if embarrassment was the worst of it, that's uh, lucky that uh, lucky nobody was seriously injured or, or killed, at least. Uh, Indeed. Yeah. Could you uh, maybe give us like a, a synopsis of uh, what what work was actually uh, done during the restoration process? Sure. The, the crux of the work was really uh, getting at the steel, uh, the exterior, the inside of the steel that encases the lighthouse. Uh, and uh, to do that, we unfortunately had to, you know, remove all the brick that had been laid up all those years ago, which was actually reused. It was perfectly um, moisture saturated. A lot of when you get to put a new brick in, they will tend to expand and contract until they meet a, uh, their equilibrium, if you will. So we wouldn't have to worry about a lot of expansion and cracking and things like that. So we reused a lot of the bricks in there, but we did have to take them all down in sections because you, you have to maintain the integrity of the, the, the weight of the structure with the bricks. So we would do vertical strips uh, of uh, demolition of masonry, expose the steel, uh, we would get the high-pressure water guns on there, blast the steel, which in some, uh, you know, the oceanside-facing steel was so badly degraded, you could almost, with a water gun, go right through. So we had to be a pretty gentle working with that. So essentially, we just went in section and section, 
blast it as quickly as we could, we would put a, a sealant on there because the steel was so old and, and it's not the kind of steel that you have today. This steel would almost um, flash over instantly and rust. So we had to get a special adhesive on that immediately to, to uh, keep that rust from immediately starting again. Right. It's actually uh, cast, and, cast iron in those days, right? Right. Right. And... So that was the, pretty much the day-to-day -day operation was removing brick, uh, blasting, coating, and then as soon as we could, get the masons in there to uh, re-brick it and move on to another section. And this uh, it's, it's nasty, dirty, dark work. Because you remember, we, this was a lot of this, uh, all this work had to be done in a uh, OSHA and hazmat-friendly environment, which meant sealing it in containing every chip of paint that was taken off. It was very, very labor-intensive and slow. Uh, uh, up we went, and fortunately, the higher we went, we started low, and it was terrible, but the, the iron was in a lot better condition the higher we went as we got farther away from the ocean. It must be incredibly expensive to maintain a lighthouse like that in that uh, exposed environment. How do uh, how does your friends group uh, get the funds necessary for the for the continued upkeep of the lighthouse? Well, uh, you're right. It is it is extremely expensive. The staging of work on an offshore island with no facilities for landing boats, no water, electricity. It's really the primary driver of our financial commitments out there. Just to maintain it, you have uh, days and days of mobilization required before any actual work can even begin, even just basic maintenance, never mind the uh, massive project we did. And conversely, the reverse is also true with the demobilization at the completion of any work order we have out there. You know, it's complex, it's dangerous, and it, it doesn't come cheap. And, and just like the main renovation, you have days and days of work before any actual work can start on either side of you know, a paint job or whatever you're doing out there. I will say we've been blessed to have a local contractor out there, which is Cavanaugh Marine Services, uh, who's been our exclusive resource for all the work since our major renovation at the lighthouse. I guess their family has lived and worked, you know, in those waters for generations. You know, while the work is dangerous and hard, they see this lighthouse as, as their personal charge, and they've assumed a real stewardship of that landmark, which is uh, incredibly fortunate for us because there's there's not a there's not a lot of Plan Bs on jobs like that. So, and the same falls true with our uh, community. We have a really steady group of patrons who give uh, to our lighthouse year in and year out to to keep this old girl standing up and and looking good. And it's you know you got to remember this is literally the symbol of our town and our region and beyond. No one. No one likes to think of our landscape without Sakonet Lighthouse, and uh, that comes tr comes to fore with our patrons and our contractors, and we're very fortunate. I'm sure the uh, the lighthouse was built in 1884, and uh, so it's been around for what almost 140 years. It's got a tremendous history, uh, certainly being in such a dramatic location and having uh, such a, a great history of. Uh, Keepers living out there in such a, an exposed location gives it helps give us such a uh, an interesting history. What do you what do you think are right. some of the some of the highlights of the history of the lighthouse? Well, as I said, I, I sort of stumbled into this, and I wasn't really a, a lighthouse guy like I am now. 
but uh, I, I would have to say that honestly, there's very little in the way of documentation we have that's available on, on this lighthouse that I know of. I, honestly, I get the feeling you know more about <laughs> her background than I do. I've certainly read the account of the keepers who wrote out uh, without any advance notice, mind you, who wrote out the hurricane of 1938, clearly uh, a testimony to the stoutness of the structure and her keepers as well. So, Scott, I have one more question for you, and this is a, this is a really important question, and this is kind of, uh, uh, I'm asking for your personal opinion here. Why is Sakana Point Lighthouse worth saving? Whew. Well, <laughs> there are myriad reasons to keep this landmark, and really all lighthouses, up and running for future generations. I would say that really it's the romance of lighthouses, and this one in particular is undeniable. Sakonet Lighthouse is, uh, I would say, it's as much of an iconic symbol of the Industrial Revolution today as it was when she first graced our coast just clear of the Civil War. You know, in a time when electricity and running water were just concepts, I mean, can you imagine the pride that Rhode Islanders must have experienced pulling up in their horses and buggies and coming to Land's End to marvel at this technological Goliath on the horizon? It's got this magical beam sweeping the shore from dusk till dawn. It, it's, it must have been mind-boggling. And on a personal level, I can only equate it to the sense of wonder I felt when I was viewing the Apollo rockets in the 1960s. And, you know, here she still remains. She's still an aid to navigation and still a site to stir the imagination. And I hope that happens for generations to come because you know better than anyone, they're not building a lot of new lighthouses. This is true. Well, that, that says it uh, beautifully, Scott, and uh, I'm sure it will last for, for many years, or at least I have uh, high hopes that it will, thanks to people like you and your group, the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse, uh, who have done incredible work, and it really is one of the most impressive uh, restorations uh, that was done several years ago. Uh, and as I said, I've watched it closely, and it, it really is uh, very, very impressive. So congratulations, and Thank you for being with me today, for spending some time with me. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much, Scott Brown. Well, thanks, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed uh, reading your books and uh, going to your lectures, and I, I would highly recommend both to uh, any of your listeners. They're, they're fascinating, and you're a great guy. I appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you. Sakonet Point Lighthouse can be seen from a distance of about 2,000 feet from the beach at Sakonet Point in Little Compton. It can also be seen distantly from Sachusett Point National Wildlife Refuge in Middletown, Rhode Island. For a closer view, you'll need to be in a boat or a helicopter. There's a company in Newport that offers helicopter tours. Check out NewportHelicopterTours.com. I want to go into some more detail about what happened in the hurricane of September 21st, 1938, the worst hurricane in recorded New England history. Most keepers didn't stay at Sakana Point Lighthouse for long periods of time, but William Durfee was an exception. Durfee became the principal keeper in 1921, and he would remain in the position for a remarkable 20 years. 
A major storm on August 26, 1924, sent waves crashing over the top of the lighthouse, 70 feet above the water, smashing the lower windows and destroying the station's boats. Bad as it was, it wasn't as catastrophic as what Durfee and assistant Joseph O. Booley would experience during the Great Hurricane of 1938. Booley was a U.S. Navy veteran who had previously been stationed at Whale Rock Light and Gull Rock Light, both in Rhode Island. The hurricane that struck without warning on September 21, 1938, left about 700 people dead in New England. It was especially hard on Saconet Point. Keeper Durfee later wrote his account of the storm. Quote, The sun rose nice as it was ever seen, but about 8 o'clock the wind shifted to the southeast. By 11 o'clock there was quite a sea running. We did not pay much attention to it. But from 12 to 2 o'clock the sea began to pound on the station with a terrible force. The sky had an amber color, shutting us in so that we had to start the fog system. By three o'clock the wind blew a gale and the sea began to go higher and higher, pounding with such a force that it smashed up all the boats, and by four o'clock we had lost part of our rain shed, one oil tank, a boat landing, also smashing in the engine room and flooding the engines and putting the fog signal out of commission. At five o'clock all outside doors had been carried away, and all windows from the first floor to the third floor were stove in so that we were practically flooded out of our home. At 5.30, I went into the tower to light up. While there, we took what was called a tidal wave. There were seas that went by that completely buried the tower. The first sea that came along was the one that caused the most damage. That one broke seven plates out of our upper deck, which is 56 feet from the average high water. That sea, when it hit the tower, sounded like a cannon, and it hit with such a force as to knock me off my feet. But when I finished lighting up and started to go downstairs, I was some surprised to find that I had to crawl through some broken deck plates that had fallen over the stairs. Of course, there were two of us at the station during the storm, and I must say that neither I or Mr. Booley, the first assistant, was afraid or considered ourselves in any danger. Although from 2 p.m. until 3 a.m. we were up to our knees in water. There were plenty done, but not much said. Once in a while, when an extra heavy sea hit the tower, Mr. Booley would say, Well, I guess that one means business. It don't seem to be taking any fooling. There was only once when I felt as if I were in for it. That was when I tried to haul cleats to a door to keep the main force of waters out of the kitchen. A sea hit the window, smashing out glass frame and all, and several pieces hit me on the arm. And one hit me in the mouth, giving me a slight cut. But Mr. Booley came to my rescue with a jar of Vicks salve and a roll of bandage and stopped the bleeding, so things went on as usual from then on. During all this time, we were taking the worst beating that we ever took in my 20 years of lighthouse service. The water got so bad inside of the tower that we gave up and wrapped ourselves in blankets and sat side by side in the kitchen swapping yarns, wondering when the wind would shift and quiet the sea down so we could get outside to look around. Finally, I got tired of sitting in a chair and at 3 a.m. I turned into a bed that was wet and still taking water every once in a while, but I did get to sleep for two hours. At sunrise, Mr. Booley put the light out and called me to see the beach. And we were surprised when we looked at the point and saw that everything had been washed away. 
Two-thirds of the 75 cottages and shanties that made up the fishing community at Sakonet Point in Little Compton were destroyed in the hurricane. Catastrophe was averted at the lighthouse, but the damage was significant. A major crack in the caisson was soon repaired, and the light remained in operation. That does it for this episode of Lighthearted. I want to thank our guest, Scott Brown of the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse. The work of the Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse is not over. With a cast iron structure and a harsh marine environment, preservation is an ongoing process. Fundraising continues as more work will always be needed. The website for Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse is sakonetlighthouse.org and the address for donations is Friends of Sakonet Lighthouse, P.O. Box 154, Little Compton, Rhode Island, 02837. I'm sure they welcome donations of all sizes. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, to the members, staff, and volunteers of the United States Lighthouse Society at the Point No Point Light Station in Hansville, Washington, around the U.S. and around the world. I'm gonna let it shine. Check out uslhs.org for information on the U.S. Lighthouse Society's domestic and international tours, on the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog, on the Lighthouse Passport Program, on the Lighthouse Enthusiast Community, and all the other great resources that are available. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it by becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society or by making a donation. If you do that, please let them know you're a fan of this podcast. Also, if you listen using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review this podcast. We want to thank Otterhawk2005, who recently posted this review. Quote, If you are fascinated by lighthouses, this is an excellent podcast to listen to. I have learned so much more about them since starting this podcast. It's full of history, interesting facts, and how lighthouses are being preserved today. We appreciate the feedback. Thanks so much. If you work or volunteer at a lighthouse, we'd love to hear from you. Please email me at jeremy at uslhs.org and let us know why you do what you do. What do you love about your lighthouse? What drives you to volunteer or to work at a lighthouse? Volunteers and staff are the backbone of lighthouse preservation and education, and we'd like to include your comments in this podcast. So again, please email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and keep a good light. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.